join Bill Murray in Stripes. This could be the best experience of your life. What the? <laughs> Surprise, buddy! I'll kill you! Whose idea was this? Ten Hut, this is Reitman for the job. I am your drill sergeant, Ross May. Today, your mission is to watch Stripes from 1981... So, uh, at ease then, everyone. I think I mentioned in my first podcast, Stripes has a special place in my heart because as a kid, when I heard people talking about things similar to Ghostbusters, the two movies everyone recommended checking out were The Blues Brothers and Stripes. So this one I've seen a lot on VHS. Now let's jump to listener questions. Guy Incognito wanted to ask, do you watch the CBC shows Shit's Creek or Workin' Moms? Unfortunately, no I don't. But a bit more of an explanation if you don't know what I'm talking about. In 2015, Eugene Levy and his son Daniel created the show Shit's Creek, which is just in its last season now. It's really, I think it's a terrible name, but all the critics say, yeah, it's a bad name and you'd expect it to be a lame sitcom, but actually it's a very, very good sitcom. So I kind of wish I was checking it out. Actually, what I really wish is that I had some more time so I could check it out. Anyway, it stars a lot of the Levies, Eugene and his kids Daniel and Sarah, and Catherine O'Hara plays the wife. So anyway, if you think the name sucks, apparently it's a very fun and smart sitcom. The other show, Workin' Moms, was created in 2017 by Catherine Reitman, who of course is the daughter of Genevieve and Ivan Reitman. Actually, I want to take a moment and say I'm sorry I overlooked her work in the previous podcasts. For some reason, when I was researching the Reitman family, I missed out completely that she has been acting for years and that she created this show, Workin' Moms. Catherine Reitman also stars and writes and directs for it. In 2019, it just started airing internationally on Netflix, so you can check it out there. I find it kind of interesting that she has a show on CBC because she's actually not Canadian. She was born and raised in LA. I mean, that shouldn't totally surprise me because she definitely has connections to Toronto, but still. Like I said, what I really need is some more time but it doesn't help that I'm weird for a millennial and I don't have Netflix. But here's something really bizarre. I don't even get over-the-air transmissions anymore. It's something that should not have happened. Years ago, my local area stopped transmitting CBC and CTV the old-fashioned way, which I believe is true for all of Canada and the States. But I have a digital receiver, but my area doesn't broadcast a digital signal. That wasn't supposed to happen. Huh. Again, I do actually live in a city, and I don't think I live anywhere especially weird, but... Actually, I do live farther north than like 80 or 90% of other Canadians, so maybe that has something to do with it. All right, the news for June of 1981 when Stripes debuted. Oh geez, we're going to start with something very depressing. In Los Angeles on June 5th, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention report that five men have a rare form of pneumonia and weakened immune systems. This was the start of what would become known as AIDS, and all five of the men were homosexual, so America and the whole world would be slow to warn the public or take this epidemic seriously. And there was a lot of prejudice and misinformation directed towards gay people. Sorry to bring you down. But I think more people are aware today that we need to remember this history. How the gay community tried telling people in power of what was happening, and how politicians especially just let people die through neglect and misinformation. On June 12th, the 1981 Major League Baseball player strike began. This was the second baseball player strike ever, and 713 games were cancelled this season. The players had previously won the right to act as free agents, so they could go to any team, and that means each player would go to the highest bidder, 
and paychecks for stars and players would skyrocket. Owners had fought against this, and since they lost in court in 1981, the owners were demanding the players compensate them if players switched teams. So the owners were trying to punish players for switching, and essentially negate the benefit of being a free agent. The players voted unanimously to strike. 713 games were cancelled, and a compromise was reached on July 31st. In the end, they came up with some rules limiting free agency that frankly I don't really understand, and games resumed again on August 9th. Also, on June 12th, Raiders of the Lost Ark released. It would be the highest grossing film of the year, while Stripes would be the fifth. Oh, and finally, I normally just stick to the news around a movie's release, but this was significant enough during filming that I thought I'd mention it here. Musician John Lennon was murdered on December 8th of 1980, while filming of this movie was happening. This is unconfirmed, but I read online that the news affected everyone working on Stripes, and they all got sad and a lot of them got drunk, which we can definitely believe. I don't believe any of the main actors or anyone had ever met John Lennon, but who knows? John Lennon was the one Beatle who never made an appearance on Saturday Night Live, by the way, so it's not like Bill Murray met him there. That's all for news, except I do have an announcement. The podcast will be going on hiatus for a while as I build up a new batch of episodes. I'll be back, hopefully in a few months, with four or five more episodes, and that's how the podcast will work going forward. Just an aside, doing a podcast is a lot of work, even ones where it's just a couple of hosts having a conversation. You might not realize how many hours people need to spend editing these things, and I think a lot of podcasters try to hide that fact. If there's a podcast you've listened to for a long time, maybe consider supporting them in some way, even if just for a short while. There's me too, and I'm at patreon.com slash rossmaywriter, but even if there are some other creators you can think of you would like to help out before me, that's okay. It's just something I'm recommending you do, because creative people all over put in a lot of work, so if you can help them even for a short time, I think it's always appreciated. In my case, I can basically only work on this podcast after my kids are asleep, and I still need time to write my other projects. And, you know, I also do need to sleep myself every so often. So I will be back with more episodes for you, probably in a couple months. Speaking of people you should support and give your attention to, here's Film Strips. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Okay, we're about to get into Stripes, but first I want to talk about Ivan Reitman in general again. When I started this podcast, I wanted to see if there were some common themes throughout Ivan Reitman's work, or if I could gain any insight into him, and now I think I have, and Harold Ramis too. Animal House, Meatballs, and Ramis's Caddyshack are all ensemble movies with funny scenes and aren't as concerned as much about the overall story or, indeed, the overall movie at all. They're almost sketch comedy movies, which makes sense given Ramis's background, and while Reitman isn't a sketch comedian, that's really the world he got into when he started producing the stage shows of National Lampoon. I think the early days of Reitman and Ramis working in movies is them taking this sketch comedy attitude of throwing anything funny into a movie with a big cast of characters, and learning more and more the value of focus and a strong through line. 
I'm going to spoil something here right now that I'll talk about more at the end of the podcast, but Stripes is a more cohesive movie than, say, Meatballs, but instead of being splintered into many little plots and undercooked character arcs, Stripes is a movie in two parts. There's the first half with the characters trying to make it through basic training, and they succeed on their own terms. Which is not how basic training works in the army, but whatever. Then there's the second half with the armored RV and those misadventures, and it really has nothing to do with the first half beyond having the same characters. And I'm not saying that's awful, or that they couldn't do Stripes this way, but it's funny because in a different world, this movie actually should be Stripes 1 and 2. The original and sequel are honestly both thrown into one movie, if that makes sense. But like I said, we'll get more into that towards the end of today. So Reitman and Ramus were learning to be more and more cohesive all the time. And I'm really jumping ahead now, but you can even see this in Ghostbusters. It gets harder there to see the seams of sketch comedies that I'm talking about, but consider for instance, why does Winston Zedmore show up in the middle of the movie? It works, and we roll with it, but Winston really only shows up when he's needed for the plot. Also, the movie is really concerned about Walter Peck shutting down the Ghostbusters, which culminates in the mayor's office scene. Does that plot have any real connection to the threat of Gozer? Yeah, yeah, the containment unit gets shut down, but I'm speaking thematically here. Does any of the Walter Peck stuff have anything to do with the Gozer plot? Apart from the Ghostbusters being proven that they're right in the end, not really. And I'll repeat again, I'm not bashing Ghostbusters. I'm not even really criticizing it for doing something, and I'm doing air quotes here, wrong. What I'm saying is that it's unusual and not something a lot of screenwriters or directors would do. The final result is great, but you can see it's born out of filmmakers who were working with sketch comedies, making outrageous and funny stories that function on their own in bite-sized chunks. I think when you see Animal House, Meatballs, and Caddyshack, you're seeing these ensemble sketch movies, but as you go through Stripes and then Ghostbusters, they're building off of what they've learned and are applying it to make more cohesive movies where you don't notice it's made up of chunks. Like everyone getting a mini-arc in Animal House. Remember the road trip where they leave the plot entirely? Or the camp counselor suddenly ditching the kids to go canoeing in Meatballs? So yeah, Stripes shows everyone getting tighter and better at telling a story and making a cohesive movie, but it's still divided in two, and Reitman and Ramus especially are going to get even better at tightening everything up in the future. We're done covering that, but I have an entirely other subject I want to discuss. I want to introduce you to my very scholarly Theory of Bill Murray Characters. Trademark. You might be familiar with other pop culture theories, like the Wold-Newton family theory that a bunch of Victorian English characters can all be related to each other, like Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan might be distant cousins. Or there's the Terminator theory for all Schwarzenegger movies. It's the idea that the good Terminator from T2 needed to learn to value human life, so movies like Commando and True Lies are really computer simulations teaching the Terminator how to be more human. I kind of like that theory, because in Commando he's John Matrix, a very computery name, and honestly, he's only a little bit more human than the robot Terminator anyway, so I dig that theory. So, let's remember this thought experiment when we get to movies like Twins and Junior. So, there are theories, or thought experiments, you can keep in mind when watching movies. So here's my point. I have a theory that most of Bill Murray's characters are all related. In Stripes, he plays John Winger, and says he was adopted. We're not clear on whether Winger is his birth name or not, because he brings up being adopted when he's asked what kind of name that is. It sounds like he was implying that Winger was either chosen or he took it on when he was adopted. Looking at some of Murray's other roles, we've got Tripper Harrison in Meatballs, the groundskeeper Carl Spackler in Caddyshack, Dr. Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters, and I want to especially point out Venkman is not a real surname. He's Frank Cross in Scrooged, Hypochondriac Bill Wiley in What About Bob, Phil Connors in Groundhog Day, that agent in the tree for the Get Smart movie. 
Just wanted to throw that one in there. So there's a lot of his roles. I noticed that we don't learn about his family in many of his movies, which is ironic given how often he plays opposite his brother Brian, but they're usually represented as not being related. The one exception is Scrooged, where Brian plays his neglectful dad. I wonder what Freud would have to say about that, his real brother playing his father. And John Murray plays his brother in Scrooged, and also I think Joel Murray is in there somewhere. But the main takeaway is that his character in Scrooged, Frank Cross, comes from a broken, unhappy home. His dad and mom split up, and he really resents Christmas. So here's the crux of my theory. What if all these Bill Murrays are actually related? Most of them act pretty much the same. Bob Wiley is the nicest and a hypochondriac, and Carl Spackler, ugh, I suppose, has a learning disability. But the rest of them are basically the same guy. I'm suggesting the mom or dad in Scrooged sired a lot of half-brothers to Frank Cross. That would fit nicely with Winger's brief backstory in Stripes, that he doesn't know his biological family. It could even fit in with Peter Venkman, just because it could either explain how he acquired that weird surname, or if you want to follow the novel or cartoon, it actually fits in because he didn't have a happy childhood and the family was pretty transitory. I know plenty of people listening are familiar with Peter Venkman's history from Richard Mueller's novel or The Real Ghostbusters, but you get me, I'm just suggesting Peter Venkman's dad or his never-seen mom could have had other children. Please don't get annoyed with me if you disagree with this idea, it's just a thought experiment. And there's a related part to this. Have you ever seen the 2009 TV show Community? There's a main character named Jeff Winger, played by Joel McHale, who actually looks like he could be related to Bill Murray. The show's creator Dan Harmon has admitted that Jeff Winger was inspired by John Winger in Stripes, and part of Jeff Winger's backstory was that his dad abandoned him and his mom. Harmon said that if he could ever get Bill Murray to agree, the idea was for Bill Murray to play the dad. I'm guessing they would have even really suggested Bill Murray was playing John Winger again from Stripes. The last name Winger could do that work for them without needing to state out loud that Bill was playing John Winger again. It would really be a case of family dynamics repeating themselves, how John Winger grew up without a father and then had a son and abandoned him. Oof, sorry for being so depressing. So there's not a lot to my theory, but hey, I think it definitely works. And by the way, do I actually watch Bill Murray rules thinking this? No, it's just something I came up with. Usually I end up forgetting about it during a movie, but it's something to toy with afterwards. And now you can too. When you watch Bill Murray in one of his famous roles, think about how he might have half-brothers who all look and act exactly like him. How does that affect your viewing of Lost in Translation, huh? Okay, I'm finally done talking about Reitman and Ramus learning to tell stories better, and about my theory on Bill Murray. We're finally into Stripes, which debuted June 26th, 1981. It was directed by Ivan Reitman, and written by his usual collaborators Len Bloom and Dan Goldberg, and Harold Ramis, who also punched up meatballs with them. And as always, the music score is by Elmer Bernstein. This almost sounds like an apocryphal story, but you can hear Reitman tell it himself in commentaries and interviews. In 1979, while getting ready for the premiere of Meatballs, he was struck with the idea that a Cheech and Chong movie where they went into the army would be fun. He developed the idea with his college buds Len Bloom and Dan Goldberg. Actually, Reitman was in Los Angeles and they were in Toronto, so they were usually discussing it over the phone. Bloom and Goldberg got a script treatment together, and Reitman presented it to Cheech and Chong's manager. The manager and comedians liked it, but they wanted to have total control over the entire project. I'm guessing that also means probably buying the idea and existing script, and then just going off without Reitman and his pals. So Reitman passed and held on to it. As he so frequently did, Reitman then took the script to Harold Ramis, who then punched it up. I'm not sure if Ramis just did a rewrite on his own, or if he spent some time and collaborated this time with Bloom and Goldberg. When he did that for Meatballs, Ramus didn't spend any time with them. 
As always, it was hard to get Bill Murray to commit to anything, but Ivan got him to agree around two weeks before the shooting started. You're probably familiar with the story that executives at Columbia Pictures didn't want Harold Ramis acting in the movie. This actually became a sticking point not so much for Ivan, but for Bill. Bill apparently was always upset that Harold never got a chance to perform on Saturday Night Live, so he would only do stripes with Harold, and that sounds like it applied the right pressure on Columbia. Just an aside to that, man, doesn't that make Bill and Harold's falling out after filming Groundhog Day even sadder? We'll probably cover that more in detail on another podcast, but their whole relationship is pretty sad to me. These two very close friends, and then that all went away. Well, they still had that friendship and working relationship for a good chunk of their lives. Hmm. Just like when shooting meatballs, Dan Goldberg was in charge of getting locations. He kept calling around army bases, and almost every base turned him down. But hey, it only takes one to say yes, and that was Fort Knox, Kentucky. This ended up working out really well, because they could shoot there, the opening scenes in Louisville, and for the Soviet complex they used an old, unused distillery owned by Jim Beam, and these were all really close to each other. I'll speak more about locations as they come up. Some of the scenes were filmed in Los Angeles, but surprisingly little. The General's Mansion, you know, the nighttime love scene, and the German Hotel are both really in LA, as is the mud wrestling scene, but I think that might be it. Oh, and Stripes was filmed at sort of this odd timing for technology. It was one of Columbia's, and probably any big movie studio's, last movies to use mono sound. It's been remastered in stereo and more sound since then, but it came out in mono. That's a thing I've noticed, that even in 77, George Lucas focused on the mono track for Star Wars because that's the setup most cinemas had, but by 81 most cinemas in North America were upgrading. So Stripes is one of the last mono pictures to come from a big studio, but this is neat. It's also one of the earliest films to use a Steadicam. You're probably familiar with them now. A camera operator's waist is attached to a rod and a stabilizing weight, and then another rod goes up to the camera. Before Steadicams, you used to put cameras on little tracks to get the smooth tracking shots, but with Steadicams you can take the camera anywhere and it will still be a smooth shot. It was invented by Garrett Brown, and Stripes is one of the first 20 movies where it's used. That might not sound too notable, but it's been used in... Geez, we're probably approaching a million movies or sporting events that have used Steadicams now. And here it was in the first couple of years of its use, and its inventor Garrett Brown was actually the person operating it. Stripes took 42 days to shoot and cost 10 million US dollars. That really excited Reitman after Meatballs cost around a million Canadian. Ivan was also all smiles when he got to speak into a megaphone and direct dozens of real soldiers marching and vehicles moving. He and his friends would look at each other sometimes and smile and go, yeah, this is so cool to be directing this much traffic, human and machinery, and a lot of them were real soldiers too. He really loved that. I think that covers most things about the production, but I wanted to mention this. The DVD interviews for Stripes were conducted in 2002, and they got a hold of Bill Murray while he was filming Lost in Translation in Tokyo. It's kind of funny, because I'm pretty sure they interview him in between takes at the karaoke bar scene. He's in a similar looking bar, but I can't be absolutely sure about that, but what gives it away is he's wearing the same clothes he wears in the movie. So they definitely interview him while he's in the process of shooting the karaoke scene. He doesn't give a lot of information other than to praise some of the other actors, particularly the late John Candy. Zitsky. I've always been kind of a pacifist. When I was a kid, my father told me, never hit anyone in anger unless you're absolutely sure you can get away with it. I don't know what kind of soldier I'm going to make, but I want you guys to know that if we ever get into real heavy combat, I'll be right behind you guys. 
every step of the way. Okay, Mr. Push-Ups. Let's hear your story. Chicks dig me. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. But now I know why I have always lost women to guys like you. I mean, it's not just the uniform. It's the stories that you tell. So much fun and imagination. Lee Harvey, you are a madman. When you stole that cow, and your friend tried to make it with the cow? <laughs> I want to party with you, cowboy. <laughs> the two of us together? Forget it. We start zoomed in on an ad for the Army. You've probably always assumed it was a real commercial at the time, and you would be right. I can't find the exact commercial online today, but here's one with the same music and narrator, probably from 79. This is the Army, where just two years can really pay off. You get two years more confidence and two years more skill. You get to travel and grow. And with Uncle Sam's help, you can get up to $7,400 for college, all in just two years. Your Army recruiter can tell you how to qualify. This is the Army, a chance to serve your country as you serve yourself. Call this number toll-free. Back to the movie. All this opening city stuff was filmed in Louisville, around an hour away from Fort Knox, where they'd film most of the movie. The apartment scene and recruitment office were both in real locations in Louisville as well, and I'm guessing the classroom too. When I used to watch this on VHS, I could never tell that it really was raining. I mean, I should have figured it out from the people in the background with umbrellas, but it's only on Blu-ray now that I can see and hear the rain. I think Murray saying, I've got a nice warm cab right here, is him ad-libbing to actual pedestrians. Of course he's saying that to a couple of women. When he loads up the car, the luggage really is all loaded and heavy. You can hear him at the end go, ow, my balls. <laughs> he really did hurt himself in that moment, so they kept that take. When Murray drives the woman dressed in fur, the clouds are gone and it's sunny, so at the very least this was filmed hours later, maybe even days. It doesn't make sense that the weather cleared up that fast. Oh hey, a good chunk of this was filmed without a tow truck rig. Murray is actually driving in some of those shots. The woman looks worried when Murray walks up to the edge of the bridge. Even as a kid, I interpreted this scene that it looks like he might jump, but instead he just tosses his keys off the bridge. If that was the intention, to make it look like he might commit suicide, and if that was supposed to be the joke, they probably should have played that scene out a bit longer before he tosses his keys. Or maybe I'm overthinking this and that wasn't the idea. John Winger walks home and he's singing a song. If you haven't noticed, Bill Murray loves singing things to himself. Remember the canoe scene in Meatballs? Here we know what the song is, it's Big Old Brew, written by Russell Smith. But here's the interesting thing. While the song was very new at the time, it came out in 1980, it wasn't a hit when it was first recorded by Amazing Rhythm Aces. It wasn't until a year after this movie came out, in 1982, that it became a hit on the radio sung by Mel McDaniel, so it didn't get much play until 82. Big Old Brew is a very appropriate song for John Winger here. Thematically, it's like an up-tempo 16 tons. A man works too hard and just wants to come home to his lady and a beer waiting for him. We'll get back to that beer in a moment. A repo guy hotwires Winger's car and takes it, ruining the dry cleaning Winger was carrying along with a pizza. Hey, did you notice anything about that pizza? I'll give you a moment. It wasn't cut. To make the joke work and have Winger toss the pizza back into the box off the pavement, it's all in one piece. He must have gotten it from the same pizzeria that's in Breaking Bad. 
let's talk about Elmer Bernstein's score. He plays the sad honky-tonk music on piano for Bill Murray. It sounds broken down, like John Winger's life. A few years later in Ghostbusters, Bernstein had the Ghostbusters and Peter Venkman really represented by piano as well, so I wonder if Bernstein began to associate Bill Murray with the piano. There are photos all over John Winger's apartment, presumably taken by him, including some of his girlfriend. So he really is into photography, like he told the woman in his cab. But after seeing this on the wall, it doesn't come up again in the movie. Winger being a photographer was Bill Murray's idea. John's girlfriend Anita is played by Roberta Layton, who hasn't been in a whole lot of stuff. I guess Young and the Restless fans would know her from appearing in the 80s and 90s. She's topless right off the bat, just to remind you what kind of movie this will be. Winger mentions that he loves Tito Puente, another inclusion from Bill Murray, because he really does love Tito Puente. If you're my age, you probably remember that name best from his guest appearance on The Simpsons for Who Shot Mr. Burns. Lisa wanted Puente to be the music instructor at the school. John Winger says, he's going to be dead someday, and you'll say, I've been listening to him for years. Ah, well, Tito did actually leave us in 2000. I've been glossing over Harold Ramis as Russell Ziski. He is introduced teaching basic English to adults, and only one student in the class knows any English, which is to curse people out. That's a good joke, and unfortunately kind of accurate for what a lot of jerks like to teach foreigners. Then Ziski leads the group in Do Do Run Run from 1963 by Phil Spector, Jeff Berry, and Ellie Greenwich. Of course, this would be a terrible song to teach English with because it uses so many nonsense words, but it's funny. Pay attention because it also sets up that Ziski is into 60s pop songs, especially if they have nonsense sounds. They're setting up running gags this early in the movie, which is good. But to the plot. Ziski goes to Winger's apartment, and Murray does a great job of tossing a basketball out the window. You can see Ramus shying away from the second throw when the basketball comes back in, and it's a genuine reaction to all that breaking glass. Winger doesn't want his pal to drink his last beer, so Ziski says they'll split it. As a kid, I just found that amusing because Winger is so poor he's possessive of his last beer, but if you remember him singing Big Ol' Brew, it's even funnier. He was hoping to go home to a beer and his girlfriend, but now she's gone, and now he's about to lose his beer. So even the little song he sang to himself doesn't come true. They see an ad for the army and Winger does five push-ups. He says he needs to get healthy or else he'll be dead by the time he's 30. I've always thought that line was weird, because Bill Murray looks like he's in his 30s already. So I wondered if either the production or Bill Murray himself were trying to fool audiences into thinking he was younger than he really was. But here, I think I finally got it. This was filmed in November 1980, and Bill Murray had just turned 30 in September. I'm wondering if the joke is just a bit of metatext or better yet Bill Murray ad-libbing, and saying that he should already be dead. That's my thinking anyway. I don't think they're trying to make Murray out to be younger and cooler than he really is. I think it's Murray making a joke at his own expense that he should already be dead. Now we're getting into the extended cut of this movie, because why not? If you watch an extended cut, the scene at Winger's apartment goes on for a bit longer. At first they figured they needed to really justify why Bill Murray's character would want to go into the army, and why Ziski would go along with him. It's really unnecessary, though, and only kind of funny. Winger talks about wanting to get a Winnebago, which becomes a gag later in the movie because he actually does get a Winnebago, the Army Special RV. So there's one joke there that would have set up the vehicle a bit. But here's what really interests me. Winger talks about wanting to go to Nepal to get romantic with the women there, and he wants monks to teach him to levitate. This is a whole involved story, and A, it's ad-libbed by Murray, and B, he's thinking about Nepal and monks and enlightenment, 
well, even if it's enlightenment, but also sex, because he's read The Razor's Edge by Somerset Mom and has its ideas rattling around in his brain. The Razor's Edge is partially set in India, not Nepal, but he's thinking along those lines. I think today, this extra scene is really telling about Bill Murray often thinking about enlightenment and The Razor's Edge. So while this cutscene isn't the funniest and isn't necessary, it does set up the RV a bit more, and it shows what Bill Murray had on his mind. It's the second movie in a row where he's alluded to the Razor's Edge. Winger and Ziski enlist in the army. Hey, Ziski is just ditching his class. That's not cool. The recruiter asks if either one of them is gay, which is definitely a sign of the times in 1981. Ramus's line, No, we're not gay, but we are willing to learn. Man, I don't know what to think about that. I think it's pretty funny, just that he's flipping around the intention of the question and making it a positive if he were gay, but it also trivializes being gay. I don't know, someone who's gay, please tell me if this joke is good or not. I think it's kind of funny, if not very forward-thinking. I've always been amused with Harold Ramis bobbing his head while Judge Reinhold asks him to hold his drugs. My read on it is that Ziski kind of knows he's in this stereotypical stoner interaction, so he's playing it up like he's a character on a TV show or something. I mean, just for himself, just for Ziski's own amusement, and Reinhold's character is too stupid to notice Ziski is making fun of him. Ramis does some more mugging later on in this film, like watch him next to John Candy when Candy talks about his anger issues later. Harold's daughter, Violet Ramis Steele, says in her book, Ghostbusters Daughter, that what her dad is doing in this movie is playing Ziski how he thinks what a cool guy is. That's pretty fun, especially because I don't think this is how most people would define cool, but I can see it. A guy who goes around having a good time and kind of making fun of everyone around him, just a little bit. Oh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that growing up, I never knew who Judge, that's his nickname, his real name is Edward, I never knew who Judge Reinhold was, and his name really stuck out in One Simpsons where Marge talks to her mom about Grandpa Simpson. Marge says, compared to Burns, he's Judge freaking Reinhold. The mom says, I don't know who that is. That was me and my sister, we never knew who Judge Reinhold was. Which now, I don't know, maybe that was the joke in Simpsons, that he was just kind of famous. And I'm not knocking him, it just always stuck out to me. But anyway, there you go, 12-year-old me. This guy here holding at the bus station is Judge Reinhold, the actor Marge was talking about. We meet the military police and leading ladies of the movie, PJ Souls and Sean Young playing Stella and Louise respectively. I'm probably going to be referring to the actresses' real names throughout this podcast because they hardly ever say their names on screen. I mean, nobody even mentions their last names, which is telling, but if you look at their name tags in uniform, it's PJ Souls playing Stella Hansen and Sean Young playing Louise Cooper. Before we get to them, a quick aside, Kim Basinger was offered the role of Stella, and this would have been her first movie ever, but it was probably well known that she was on the rise, she was already a model and had done television, and her manager asked for a quarter of a million dollars, so Reitman and the rest had to turn her down. They were all super happy with PJ Souls anyway. Really quickly, PJ Souls has led an interesting life. She grew up living all over, in Europe and South America and the States, and she's a polygot. She knows English, French, Spanish, German, Russian, and probably other languages. And this is fun. The movies Carrie and Star Wars were being cast simultaneously, so when she went in for a casting call, she met George Lucas and Brian De Palma at the same time, and De Palma said he'd take her. So she's in Carrie, the one wearing a red hat with pins, and that was her own hat. Also, while filming, Steven Spielberg came around and asked her and pretty much every other actress there out. And she's totally in Halloween. Totally. By the time for Stripes, she was married to actor Randy Quaid, and he was trying to get the role of Russell Ziski. 
Of course, then Bill Murray made sure Harold was acting in the movie, but I guess Randy Quaid must have told PJ to try out for the women's roles. She auditioned for Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis, despite the fact that she'd be playing opposite Bill Murray in the movie. Come on, we know Bill isn't going to show up for casting auditions. But Ivan and Harold liked her and gave her the part. Let's talk about Sean Young. I believe this was her second acting credit ever. This is a bit condescending, but Ivan cast her mostly based on her looks, but then it all worked out. And she's had some cool roles, especially almost immediately after Stripes by being in Blade Runner. And man... Okay, if you know Hollywood gossip, Sean Young always gets a bad rap. And I think it looks like she's had problems, but the Hollywood system is definitely misogynistic. If she made some mistakes or pissed off some people, she was right out of major productions, while men could do worse things and they still got to stick around for years of stars. So I don't know, maybe Sean Young has had problems over the years, but I think Hollywood has always really been unfair to her. Oh, finally about the women. This story is so believable. They were the only women for the entire shoot, right? There's just the girlfriend playing opposite Bill in the apartment, and John Larroquette's date in one scene. So PJ Souls and Sean Young are the only two women around on the army base, and of course all the other actors were asking them out on dates. They'd share a room practicing lines, and they had to take the phone off the hook because it kept ringing with all the guys calling them up, asking them out. PJ Souls laughs about this, so that's good. We meet John Candy playing Ox. We'll talk about him more later, but I just want to say he was one of the few actors who didn't have to audition for this movie. Ramus especially wanted him on. Oh, and he was a real friendly guy, of course, and there are stories of him cooking spaghetti in a trailer for everyone who came over. Co-stars, the crew, apparently sometimes even just locals who weren't part of the filming. It sounds like he invited everybody and was just the sweetest person. We meet Sergeant Hulka, that's Warren Oates, and Captain Stillman, played by John Larroquette, at the army base. John Larroquette trips over something walking away and orders to have it removed. I'm pretty sure that was him really tripping over something and ad-libbing that line, which is good. Notice that when he's in uniform for most of the time, he has this camo ascot, that thing around his neck. It's a silly little reminder that he's a jerk and we're supposed to hate him, like he's one of the Omegas who has finished college from Animal House. I really like John Larroquette, and when he's playing comedy, I think he matches really well with any SCTV or SNL actor. He's that good. Come to think of it, I think it's kind of too bad that Ivan Reitman hasn't used him in any of his other movies. But this is funny, he's actually in Meatballs 2 and Beethoven's 5th, both movie series that started with Reitman, but then Ivan had nothing to do with them later. Let's talk about Warren Oates. I talked about him a bit when he appeared in 1941. I know him best from here, The Wild Bunch, and In the Heat of the Night. I know, I know, I should really watch more of his films sometimes, and he's in a ton of westerns. But he was a really good choice for the drill sergeant. Warren Oates was too young to serve in World War II, but he became a Marine in 46. I don't believe he ever saw combat, at least there's no indication he did from online, but he would have at least had some military experience and knew how to perform as a drill sergeant. And here's the sad thing. Stripes debuted in June of 81, and Warren Oates passed away in April of 82, less than a year later. And he was just 53 years old. He contracted influenza and then had a heart attack. And he really was a western sort of guy, and had his ashes spread at his ranch in Montana. So let's enjoy Warren Oates while we can. Sergeant Hulka gives a speech to the new recruits. It's all pretty standard stuff, at least for the movies, if not real life. But here's the thing, Winger wants to make little snide comments. Hey, we all do that. It's fun. But Hulka isn't saying anything outrageous. I mean, what was Winger expecting? And Hulka tells him to go out and do 50 push-ups, a callback to how Winger could barely do five a few scenes ago. If we're supposed to dislike Hulka in this scene, if he's almost the de facto villain, fine. 
But what on earth was Winger expecting? I guess my point is I'm actually kind of on Hulk's side for this scene. If he was an authority figure for something Winger didn't sign up for, I'd understand it. But in this case, nah. John Candy as Ox is especially upset about his hair getting cut off. If you're not familiar with what Ziski is doing, he's singing Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna is a type of Hinduism, and the men typically have shaved heads. They were famous for a lot of years making themselves visible and trying to convert passers-by, so that's what Ramus is playing up there. If you listen carefully, Ox even points out the obvious and asks how Ziski got to keep his hair so long. Winger does too, for that matter, but it's not as noticeable in every scene because Murray is losing his hair, so you only really notice it some of the time. Of course, you and I know the real reason Ziski and Murray didn't get their hair cut as short as everybody else is because they're the stars of the movie. Everyone gets kitted out, and here's a bit. Winger is the last to exit a building, and Hulka tells him, I've noticed that you're always last. Winger says, I'm pacing myself, Sergeant. Okay, that's funny on face value, but there's even more to that joke in the context of the time. Once upon a time, jogging as an activity didn't really exist. I know that's weird to say, because it's just running at a set pace, but really, fun runs didn't used to exist, and people just didn't run on sidewalks or paths. Jogging as a sport or activity began in New Zealand in the 60s, then spread around the world, and this is amazing, it was actually seen as controversial for a good part of the 70s. Joggers were arrested because it was a suspicious activity, and you could read old editorials in places like the New York Times saying, what the heck are all these people doing running on sidewalks? So to an older generation, like Hulka's, jogging was seen as a nuisance and a pretty hippy-dippy activity to do. So let's break down Winger's joke. That he's pacing himself. It's not just that he's acting lazy and giving a smart-ass reply. What he's doing is referencing jogging and lumping himself in with a crowd of younger people Hulka probably wouldn't respect and would also see as unmanly. I don't know why jogging isn't manly, but that was the idea for years. By the early 80s, perception on this was starting to turn around, but the joke that audiences would get at the time is that Winger is setting himself up even harder as a young punk Hulka won't like. So there, a lot to unpack in just one line about pacing yourself. Oh, and if you're thinking, but Ross, what about the movie Rocky? That's in 76, and he jogs. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. It shows Rocky's level of poverty, that he doesn't have a private area to run in or a treadmill, so he's got to do it out in the open. And Rocky can interact with folks, he's a man of the people, and he's putting himself out there even if there are some people who would think what he's doing is weird. Rocky jogging had an even bigger impact back when it was in theaters, because audiences knew what that meant. When he runs up those steps, by the way, that's a Steadicam shot, but when Rocky raises his arms and would look silly to people who don't hear the soundtrack, it matters even more how he's giving it his all. Oh man, now I want to watch Rocky. But we're watching Stripes. Ziski starts, Do what diddy, which Winger joins in with them and then everyone shouts and marches to. It's from 1963, so of the same vintage as Do Run Run. It's written by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich. I know the song pretty well because my mom loves it and used to play it a lot. It's most famously done by the UK band Madfriend Man. There she was, just walking down the street singing. Good, you look fine, and I nearly lost my mind. Hurry up, Mike Smith. Hurry up, hurry up. 
bond in their bunks. I've already mentioned how we're going from Animal House to Meatballs to this, and you can sort of see the remnants of them having the supporting cast with nicknames and little things going for them. Like there's Francis, or Psycho, and he has a good moment, but then his personality, indeed the entire character, doesn't matter for the rest of the movie. There's John Deal, playing a character named Cruiser, not that I think his name matters at all. But he's fun, and his whole deal is that he's stupid. Ivan Reitman has a great story about John Deal that he'd get into a mode of acting stupid and he literally would become dumber. So Ivan would explain something to the cast and if Deal was in character, it would take him a few moments to get into the right headspace and understand what was needed to do. So that's really method acting. But besides Winger and Ziski, the army recruit who matters the most is John Candy playing Ox. Now here's the thing. His character here talks about swallowing a lot of anger and a lot of pizza. His deal is supposed to be that he can be an angry guy. We've already seen that briefly when he attacked Ziski after they all got their haircuts. But here's also my thinking, this whole idea of Ox, of John Candy being an angry man, doesn't really work in the movie. It's most natural after the haircut, and we'll see him later lose it at the motor pool when they're practicing drills. This all finally pays off when they're being rescued at the end of the movie. Ox is supposed to be mad and runs at the door, and he frees everyone. It's even supposed to kind of play into the scene where he mud wrestles the women, but doesn't really work there. That's my thinking. John Candy was just too charming and lovable to be taken as an angry guy. At least, that's how I've always felt watching this movie. When he finally breaks the door at the end of the movie, I don't feel him being angry so much as him just yelling. Really, just because. I just don't accept him as being angry that much. So actually, for years and years, I never really caught that he's supposed to have this through line. A bit more about Deal and Candy. Ivan Reitman figured out pretty fast that they played off each other pretty well. That's why you get scenes later with them gambling and Ox being friendly but actually cheating, and their bunkmates and Ox fools them into making both of their bunks. Those scenes are improvised, and they're great. Reitman says that the rest of the cast was kind of cursing out Deal because he was getting more screen time than the rest of them, and it was really accidental and just because he was a good comic foil for John Candy. I jumped around a lot there, but let's get back to the scene where Ox introduces himself. Ziski is next to him, aping his facial expressions. It's such a dumb thing to do and I love it, and it shows how Ramus goes through parts of this film just mugging, which is interesting because it's not like we see him do that in Ghostbusters. My favorite line, one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, is this ski explaining why he's a pacifist. He says, My father told me, never hit anyone in anger unless you're absolutely sure you can get away with it. Words to live by. Here's the thing I noticed. Hulka tells the men that they're going to do a 10-mile run in the morning, rain or shine. When it is raining the next morning, the Sarge is banging that trash can. He says they've got five miles to do. Now, hey, I don't want to do five miles in the rain, but if any of the men would remember, it seems like he's letting them off just a little tiny bit. Then Winger screws it up by saying they should be better rested. Way to go, John. 
It's training montage time. It's all funny stuff, and you should just watch it. Out of all of them, I think the funniest to me is John Candy unable to turn on the path, so he just keeps running into some trees. And Winger does more push-ups, showing he has to endure the thing he and Ziski talked about at the start of the movie. One day filming this montage content, Reitman told all of the guys to throw Warren Oates into the mud and see what happens. Well, you and I can imagine what happened. Oates chipped a tooth, then he tore a strip off of Reitman, told him that he didn't mind that sort of thing if he was prepared for it, but that Reitman and the cast should never do that to anyone not prepared for it. Ivan apologized and learned not to do that kind of thing again. To round out the earlier scenes of Ziski and Winger singing Do What Diddy, at sunset Winger leads everyone in singing an army recruitment song from TV. Here's the jingle, probably from 1980. It's a great place to start would be the slogan the U.S. Armed Forces would use in commercials for several years in the 80s. I like it how Bill Murray slows it down. Again, one thing we've learned about him, Bill loves to sing, even if just to amuse himself sometimes. We see a couple of scenes of John Larroquette in his office as Stillman. In one, he's playing with toy tanks, and Larroquette says he was genuinely playing with them just then. In the other scene, he's spying on women showering. I think whoever installed those windows in the women's showers had to do that intentionally, right? Larroquette is ad-libbing all his lines there too, and one is, I wish I was a loofah. Ivan Reitman didn't know what a loofah was. They're kind of like rougher sponges, and natural loofahs are made from certain dried fruit. Well, Ivan had never heard of them before, so John Larroquette had to explain it to him. If you have the extended cut of the movie, what follows is the largest cut sequence. It's also the most obvious remnant of the movie starting as a Cheech and Chong film. I'll summarize it by saying, Hey man, wouldn't it be funny if one of the guys got high on the wrong drugs, and then they had to jump out of the plane in South America, and were captured by guerrilla fighters there? And like... They have huge blunts. All that really matters is it shows Winger and Ziski going AWOL, which gets mentioned immediately afterwards in the theatrical cut. But anyway, in this scene it looks like Ziski's glasses got pierced with a bullet hole, and he's breaking down and wants to quit. So Winger takes him out in the dumbest way possible, on a military transport plane. In comes a platoon of marines who are going to South America for a mission, and Winger and Ziski pretend like they're secret operatives. I kind of like imagining that the Marine commander knows that they're lying, but just doesn't care if they die on the mission because everyone parachutes out of the plane. It's an easy effect to do because the plane is obviously still on the ground, and they just shove Ramus and Murray out the door, then cut to stock footage of parachuting troops. Winger and Ziski land together and are caught by rebel fighters. Murray speaks some bad Spanish to them, and when they finally had enough, they are ready to kill the two. Winger sings Cuando, 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 a song from 1962. He doesn't even know any of the other words, so all he can repeat is quando quando over and over. This amuses the rebels and then they start to dance, and Winger and Ziski run off, randomly running into the marines in the plane now that it's landed, and hitch a ride back to base. These scenes are fine, but it's some of the weakest stuff in the whole movie, so I'm glad they cut it. And hey, if they had left the quando 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 scene in, then this movie would share something with the Blues Brothers. Remember Murph and the Magitones playing at the Armada Room? Meeting back up with a theatrical cut, we're back at the bunks. There's that scene with John Candy and John Deal playing cards, and Deal is too stupid to realize he shouldn't show his hand. See, here Candy is being devious but charming, which works so much better for him than just to say that he's angry. Hulka knows some guys went AWOL, and Winger gets a bit mouthy again, and we get a serious scene between the two. I like it that Hulka tells him to step into my office, which turns out to be the washroom, which is funny, and in keeping with Hulka's attitude. 
Reitman's really proud of this scene in the washroom because there's nothing funny about it. You can tell he's becoming stronger as a storyteller and realizes you can do a few scenes with emotional weight even in a comedy. Now it's Winger who wants to leave, and he runs off in the middle of the night. You probably picked up on this. A quiet version of the Winger sad piano theme plays here. It's his theme, but this is also him quietly trying to regain that life, even if it was sad and stupid and he left it for a reason, so the piano coming back makes you feel that. This scene of him just trying to get off base is a lot less fanciful than him and Ziski trying to quit by parachuting out of a transport plane, so again I'm glad they dropped that extended part to just focus on this more realistic idea. Ziski grabs him, and Winger refuses to admit that this was all his idea for them to join up, which infuriates Ziski. The women, that's PJ Souls and Sean Young again, find them and drive them home, so it's good to see them back in the film here to remind you they exist. It's kind of been a while, and in the commentary Ivan mentions that they were going to be in more scenes to establish that they were around, but them showing up here again works. John Larroquette is watching soldiers fire mortars, and tells some to go ahead and just do it, despite them not knowing where it will land. It ends up blowing up Sergeant Hulka. It's pretty easy to see how they composed that scene. For one thing, it's not Warren Oates climbing up that rope. There is a real explosion, but they constructed the platform to partly fall away, then you see a stuntman fall. If you watch carefully or pause it, you can actually see a little trick platform, almost like a diving board designed to fall down, so they have the stuntman fall in a shot where they don't show the ground, so you know he's actually falling into a big mat. The scene works, I'm just saying it's cute and you can see how they put it all together. When Hulka is on the ground and makes a few sounds and strangles Ox, I always found it weird. It sounds to me like Hulka's almost beeping. There's another deleted scene, with a platoon in John Larroquette or Stillman's office. It's made clear that Winger has Stillman's number and knows he was responsible for the mortar fire that injured Sergeant Hulka. It's another unnecessary scene, but it's interesting because it's the only time Bill Murray and John Larroquette interact in the movie. Now we're at the mud wrestling at the pom-pom. There's Dave Thomas playing the MC. Ivan Reitman was going through all his McMaster and SCTV friends. Wow, how many is it now on the SCTV scorecard? Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy in Cannibal Girls, that's two. John Candy is in this movie, that's three. Harold Ramis, four. Dave Thomas here, that's five. Rick Moranis coming up in Ghostbusters is six, so we're at six. Oh wait, there's another actor in this movie. Joe Flaherty plays a Soviet border guard, so we're up to seven if we include Rick Moranis coming up in Ghostbusters. We'll keep an eye out for more going forward, but man, I think we're already past the halfway point for SCTV actors. The song playing at the pom-pom is Rubber Band Man, sung by the Spinners in 1976. And hey, now Stripes shares something with Avengers Infinity War, because the song shows up there too. John Candy was nervous about mud wrestling the women, which is understandable. Again, he's picked to do it because he's big and he's supposed to be angry, but you see him so much trying to be gentle with them so it doesn't really fly to me. The place gets raided. I kind of wonder why. I guess it's raided because of all the nudity and rowdiness, I guess? But it's not really that rowdy, even in the mud, really. And I kind of figure that the place is mostly naked every night, so I don't really understand why the place was raided that night. Anyway, I'm thinking too hard about this. The women spot Winger and Ziski and take pity on them, arresting them. Oh, and really quick, when we see the small group in front of Larroquette, Judge Reinhold is wearing sunglasses at night. I always just noticed that was funny, but I finally figured it out that the reason he's wearing sunglasses is that he's trying to hide the fact that he's high and his eyes are bloodshot. Hey, there you go. I mean, being a stoner is supposed to be his defining feature, but it doesn't really come up again in the movie. Then we get the scene in General Barnicky's house. The interior was filmed at a really nice house in Beverly Hills towards the end of shooting, after they didn't need the rest of the platoon anymore. 
In the commentary, Ivan Reitman makes it sound like the interior and exterior are the same house, which would make sense, but maybe I'm understanding him wrong. The scenes between Harold Ramis and Sean Young playing a teenage game with force fields is cute. You might have heard this, that Bill and PJ Soul scenes really was filmed late, at 3am. I always found this funny because they're indoors and it's something that they could have actually filmed at any time, so they didn't need to go for that level of verisimilitude. I never understood until recently that the plan during the night shoot was to film more outside, probably some scenes around the house, but the weather was bad so they moved filming inside, so that's how this romance scene ended up being shot so early in the morning. Bill gave PJ a heads up that he was going to try something, then started playing around with everything starting with the carrot, so all her reactions are genuine. I think everyone agrees her giggling really makes that scene work. She does really well playing off of him, even getting a pun in herself at the end saying he makes her hot, because, you know, she was on the stove. So this is a scene that really works with Bill's strategy of improvisation. And real quick, oh man, that bedroom scene. You have just enough time to wonder, where are they? And why is nobody on the bed? And then up pops PJ Souls and Bill Murray out of the chest at the foot of the bed. That's great because it's both funny and kind of sexy, so it's perfect. Winger and Ziski get back to their barracks at 2am, and they learn that they're all going to have to repeat basic training again unless they get things together for graduation in the morning. Watch for this, when Psycho pulls out a knife and threatens them, Bill Murray has this awkward reaction. He's acting like he's afraid, I guess. I can't tell if he was going for genuine fear and it just didn't work, or if he's supposed to be making kind of fun at Psycho. It's not often that I see Murray do something that doesn't really work for him. So Ziski figures they can cram for graduation, just like he did for college tests. They get over to the motor pool and practice drills together, and this is the scene I mentioned before where Ox is supposed to blow up at another guy. I only somewhat buy it because they're all tired, but otherwise I just don't really accept John Candy itching for a fight with someone. So I don't gloss over it. What Ziski says is he wants the black guys to help the white guys keep rhythm. I mean, it is racist, but it's... Look, there is no such thing as reverse racism, but we know it's not meant to be mean-spirited. I only even bring it up because I don't want to ignore when these kind of things do happen. So a fight is about to break out, and Winger yells at everyone and gives a big speech. And yeah, here's another example of the star, John Belushi or Bill Murray, delivering a speech to a group of misfits. This is descended directly from Animal House. You might say, well, there are lots of speeches in movies, but the point here is that the speech is ironic. It is inspirational, but it's spoken by a guy who's being real, who isn't an inspirational figure, and he puts them all down first before driving to his point. Winger compares themselves all to mutts, which isn't exactly the best comparison to make, but at least he's lumping in everyone together, regardless of background. He also says their ancestors have been kicked out of every other decent country, which, again, really ignores America's history of slavery, but nah. There's more. Winger says that Americans are the underdog. Hoo boy. If America ever was the underdog, it hadn't been for a long time by 81, especially the military. I mean, it should be obvious that's immediately at odds when he says, we've been kicking ass for 200 years, we're 10 and 1. So 10 victories and 1 loss. The 1 loss should be obvious, Vietnam, which only ended in 75. I'm sure that's big in the American public consciousness, but Winger's really ignoring the Korean War, plus smaller wars America never focus on, or you could go back to historic wars in the 19th century, but whatever, for Winger's character, the statement makes sense. Winger says, there's something wrong with us, something very, very wrong with us. Again, more of that irony, before driving home the point that they're Americans, and they can still work together. On a surface level, I liked this speech when I heard it as a young teen. It sounds nice, and it appeals to the American dream, and e pluribus unum, from many, one. 
I also like to point out that Ivan Reitman really liked this scene. And it sounds like the, we come from everywhere, we've been kicked out of all the other countries, that part really speaks to him because the Reitmans are a family of refugees. So the Canadian or American immigrant story really speaks to him, and I respect that. But just, let's get a bit real here, because Reitman and a lot of people involved are ignoring a lot of big asterisks to the American dream. Winger ignores some of the ancestors of the black members there did not come to America by choice, or that there might be some First Nations men there. He just makes a statement that appeals to the myth of America. Everyone immigrated here for a better life, right? Which, no. Then the idea that they're underdogs, particularly in the context of the military. I'm sure some people are telling me right now that this is just a comedy, and I should stop harping about this. And I will, but look, I subscribe to this whole theory that Westerners would be better off if our pop culture just didn't lazily accept myths that we're underdogs, or that we've always been fighting just wars. I have friends and family who volunteer with refugees from war, and I think the whole public today is more aware that the American dream is a lie to a lot of people, like that it's entirely a nation of immigrants who came seeking better lives. That's true for some families, but not for everyone. So yes, this scene works, but in real life we shouldn't take something like this at face value. A final note on that scene, Winger references Old Yeller, which you're probably familiar with and can look up yourself. It just plays into the dog motif, where mutts were also underdogs and dogs are lovable, that whole bit. Winger also says that since they're all different, Americans aren't Spartans or Watusi, which he's using as an example of unified fighting groups. Sparta, of course, was the Greek state with the most famous warriors. You're probably familiar with the story of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. It's interesting he uses Watusi as the other group, more accurately named as Tutsi, living in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and Congo. To really oversimplify centuries of history, German and Belgian colonizers worsened divisions between Tutsi people and other groups, particularly the Hutus, like only allowing Tutsis to go to school or have government jobs. From 69 to 71, Hutus revolted against oppression and killed and displaced thousands of Tutsi and created an independent Rwanda. So, oh geez, Winger is taking all that history and violence and boiling it down to the fact that the Tutsi, which he calls Watusi, see themselves as a distinct and unified group. Oh, and I mentioned I know refugees, and volunteers who help refugees. I know a family who fled the Rwandan genocide in 1994, where foreign militaries had the opportunity to stop some of the bloodshed and didn't. I come by my criticism of Western foreign policies honestly. So there's my tangent, and no, I'm not apologizing for that tangent. Think about the media you consume. So Winger's speech is honestly pretty false in the grand scheme of things, but it sounds nice, and it's an appeal to them to work together, so that's good. I like it that an inspirational speech is going to make them perform better even though they're all dead tired. Now it's the graduation ceremony, and all of this was filmed in one day, because while the army was willing to work with the film crew, it's not like they were going to waste all of the soldiers' time for multiple days on the shoot. I like it that the one soldier who salutes and mouths something to John Larroquette, obviously indicating he doesn't know where Winger's platoon is. The general up on the podium is supposed to be General Barnicky, the same general whose house was empty a few scenes ago. Barnicky is played by Robert Wilkie, a character actor who mostly did westerns. He started acting in the 30s, and this was his final role. I looked at his filmography, and it's almost entirely old westerns I've never heard of. I swear, like in 1947, he's in a dozen movies that all sound the same. He probably didn't even need to change his costumes between sets. Ah, but he is one of the three heavies waiting at the train station in high noon for their boss to arrive. I mean, that's another western, but it's one to remember. But anyway, that's Robert Wilkie. In comes Winger leading the platoon. When you see everybody running, and the camera moves with them, that's when you can really tell it's Garrett Brown working his steady cam. 
ditto for when there are tracking shots and the guys do their routine. Sometimes it pans around them and you get some interesting shots. So yes, the big routine. This was choreographed by Broadway dancer and choreographer Ron Farella. Make sure you watch it because it's one of the highlights of the movie. Breaking things down again, first off the humor. The musical chanting goes back to the do what diddy march Ziski and Winger started earlier. I checked carefully, and I don't think they're doing any particular song at any point here, except for one element. Let's talk about Boom Shakalaka. I realized, hey, I don't know where that comes from. From pop culture, it's famously used here, and I remember it in the video game NBA Jam, and I guess it shows up in Muppet Treasure Island. So where does it come from? There's a couple places. One is a song called Boom Shakalaka by Jamaican singer Hopeton Lewis, where it's much slower than how it's used as an exclamation today. But you've also got American bands Sly and the Family Stone doing funk and psychedelic rock. They don't feature it as strongly, but in some vocals like Higher and Higher, no, not the song featured in Ghostbusters 2, they'll end a phrase with Boom Laka Laka as an exclamation. On the commentary, Ivan Reitman says that's where he was pulling Boom Shaka Laka from. So there you go. If anyone has more information on the origin of Boom Shaka Laka, please let us know. It does seem to be a black American and Jamaican phrase that made it out to everybody. That seems to make sense because Chakalaka, usually spelled with a CH, is a South African dish, so the root of the Shakalaka might have its origin in one of the many languages of South Africa. You can tell I'm into etymology, the study of words, and how a word ends up becoming an exclamation in a video game and sports. So, the routine itself. Of course, the actors all practiced, and they were very proud that they were able to do this. I wish there was footage of them doing it without any editing or close-ups, just seeing them do the entire thing in a long shot. That would be cool to see. What else? Dennis Quaid is an extra in that audience. I mentioned him before, trying for the part of Ziski. Well, he was on set that day visiting his then-wife, PJ Souls. Hey, at one point Winger shouts Queen Anne salute, but that's not what they do. A standing Queen Anne salute is flipping the rifle end over end, and it comes behind your arm. What they do here is kick up their rifle and put it to the right shoulder. Oh, and they end by shouting, The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. You might know that's a sentence that uses every letter of the alphabet. So yes, it's a fun routine, but let's move on with the story. General Barnicky asks what's up with the platoon and their drill sergeant, and Winger shouts out flip responses followed by the platoon. Now comes the part I've always noticed. The general is impressed by the group, which, fine, they obviously practiced an impressive drill, but what he's impressed by is that they've completed basic training without a drill sergeant, so without an instructor. I mean, this should be obvious. You can't learn how to be a safer, effective soldier without someone teaching you. What do you think would happen if they were sent into a firefight? Suddenly, a lieutenant realizes they don't know how to load their guns, they can't follow basic commands, and they all get killed. I keep bringing up questions that this movie had no intention of dealing with. Reitman and the rest wants us to gloss over this very obvious problem, so whatever, let's roll with it. I'm just saying I noticed that the general was an idiot even when I saw this movie as a kid. Oof, this is depressing. But maybe we can say General Barnicky isn't all there anymore? He's a bit brain-addled or something? But anyway, the general sends the platoon to Italy to guard the secret recreational vehicle, the EM-50. It's party time Italian style. I like it how the girlfriends are the only ones to realize the gravity of this situation. They look at each other with shock and a bit of horror.
And just before we go on, this is what I mentioned at the top of the podcast. I think Stripes is great all around, before and after the graduation scene, but the plot from the start of the movie is basically over. Winger was a screw-up, and wanted to know if he could make it in the army, and he did, and on his own terms. Which isn't even at all how the army works, but this is kind of a fantasy. Winger and Ziski becoming soldiers ends that story, and now we need to move to Europe and introduce the whole plot with the EM-50, because we're not up to feature length yet. You might want to argue against this idea and say that we haven't seen the guys function as soldiers yet. Yeah, but Stripes is never going to reach that point in a satisfying way, because Winger isn't that kind of character. The protagonists are going to save their platoon at the end of the movie, but it's not because they're good soldiers or follow orders. So we're never going to get to that scene. We're never going to reach the point where we see Winger act like a real soldier. It's either going to be a betrayal of this independent Bill Murray character, or a few minutes after the end of the movie when he gets off the plane, some general is going to notice that John Winger is actually a liability in the army that he refuses to take any commands. I'm covering all my bases here, but it's all to prove this one point. The plot from the start of the movie is over, and now we just need to have these characters go on a new adventure. And look, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just something to notice. They get to Italy, which is just a different set of bunks at Fort Knox. I like this. Winger says, Who's up for the Vatican? Let's get some people and some relics and we'll do it. That's a good line I'm guessing Murray improvised, but what I really like is Ramus's reaction. He says, Nah, I don't. And then he mumbles something I can't understand. But I love it that he's probably improvising too, but it's just his natural reaction that he's Jewish, and his character Ziski is almost certainly Jewish, so he's just like, nah man, I don't care about the Vatican. We also get another scene of Ox and Cruiser, where Ox fools him into making his bunk. More fun improvisation. John Candy is so polite and matter-of-fact about it, it really works. And Warren Oates comes back into the picture as Sergeant Hulka, saying Buona sera, which means good evening. And you might just think, oh, he's speaking Italian because they're in Italy. Yes, but there's something to this as well. He's saying it because Buona Sera is a popular song from 57, so he's really also referencing that. And it makes sense for his character because it would have been a popular song for Hulka's generation two decades ago. Louis Prima and Dean Martin sang the two most popular versions of it. Man, I bet you didn't think there would be so many references to songs in this movie. Winger whispers, It is alive, which of course is referencing the 1931 Frankenstein film. There's the idea that Hulka should be dead, or at least broken down, but he's up and walking around. His arms are even bandaged when he comes in. Hulka wants to see the men all walking tall, looking good. Oh, I better mention this. In earlier drafts of the script, the drill instructor was really supposed to die in that mortar fire. That, that would have made this film too dark, I think. Then they also realized they basically wanted the same sergeant character back in the European scenes, so they actually considered introducing a twin brother played by the same actor. It sounds extra stupid to me. Reitman and Goldberg said they wised up and brought him back, and they're especially thankful because they liked having Warren Oates in the film. And hey, why is Hulka over in Italy with them? He was their drill sergeant, so basically their teacher. Unless there's some special case I'm really not aware of, they're not assigned to platoons on active duty. Huh. If I want to Marvel no-prize this, we can say that Larroquette's character, Stillman, knew the men were screw-ups, so he got Hulka over to Italy to keep them all in line. Oh hey, a quick shout-out to the props people. They put up English and Italian signage everywhere. You see an Italian flag flying outside one building, even though it really still looks like Fort Knox. And barely visible, they put up a Fort Milano sign on a concrete structure. 
I mean, all they needed to do was basically just put a poster and stick it up on the concrete, but it's convincing enough from far away. And we're introduced to the EM50 Urban Assault Vehicle, which is an RV. Eh, it's a good joke, and it looks lame, particularly almost 30 years on viewing this, but you know what? The idea is really sound, and devious too. Drive around, people think you're not a threat, and then up pops rocket launchers and armored plating. It's like a James Bond car, only can hold lots of people and it also looks lame, so, you know, it's less conspicuous in that regard. Its real problem would be driving it anywhere outside of North America. You take it anywhere else in the world, and it sticks out for being distinctly American. Oh yeah, what the RV is, what they started out with for this movie, is a 1970s GMC motorhome. I read some sites say they can't pin down exactly what year it was, while other sites say it's from 73. There's a deleted scene here. Hulka gives all the men the weekend off to enjoy Italy, while he orders Winger and Ziski to watch the EM-50, straight up telling Winger he hates him. It's a funny little scene, and it explains a bit better why Winger and Ziski thought they could take the RV for a joyride for the whole weekend and not be missed. Back to the theatrical movie, I like it that Ziski is reading the technical manual while he's guarding it, which actually sets up how he understands operating it. And I know the platoon is now aware of the RV, but if it's top secret, you'd think they wouldn't be privy to all this information. Oh well, that's me overthinking this again. The main point is Winger convinces Ziski to go AWOL with the RV, find their girlfriends in Germany, and have some fun. I like their back and forth. No, 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 no. I'll drive. Okay. But geez, it sure is convenient the ladies aren't at Fort Knox right now and are over in Germany. Weird how that worked out so well. Here's an important scene, but I'll explain why at the end. Captain Stillman has a date and wants to show the RV off to her, which is an inherently funny idea because it doesn't impress most people, but he's so jazzed about it he wants to show off that he's important. Also, also, small thing, they're supposed to be in Italy, but this date has a North American accent, and it's made kind of clear she's probably not in the army. There's nothing wrong about this at all, but apart from the signs, it goes to show that they're not really trying very hard to say that this is Italy. Maybe they should have had the actress do an Italian accent. Even if it sounded bad, that still would have been fun. Anyway, they go inside, and the RV is gone, and Stillman understandably goes ballistic. Here's the significant thing about that scene. As Larroquette runs out of the hallway, he pushes against a door and talks to the guard. This was all the first take, and it all worked. Reitman always asks for a second take just to be on the safe side, which is understandable. So Larroquette ran down the hall again, but this time the door stuck, so he smashed his face into that glass. I hear differing stories from people whether he shattered the glass or not, but anyways, he cut up and broke his nose. I don't know how long he was out of commission, but it's actually kind of impressive that you see him for more scenes in the movie and he has makeup on his nose where he was cut. John Larroquette always had an aquiline nose, but if you ever see him before this movie, it used to look different. And afterwards, I'm not saying he's ugly or anything, but this made the end of his nose kind of bulbous. Afterwards, when he saw Ivan Reitman, Larroquette would point to his nose and say, See? Look what you did to me! Oh, but the filmed scene. I like the fact that Winger and Ziski were able to steal the RV by telling a guard they were taking it out for a wash. Cut to Germany, and a hotel called Schloss von Habsburg, which is like saying Manor or Palace of Habsburg. But ha, it's also bad German. There shouldn't be a von there, because there is a Schloss Habsburg, but it's not in Germany, it's in Switzerland. It's like Reitman and his crew weren't even caring about these kind of details. Whatever, I'm just pointing them out. What's supposed to be that German hotel is really Greystone Mansion, built in Beverly Hills in 1928 as a private residence for the Dohanis, the first oil tycoons in California. Future owners rented it out as a filming location, and then it was sold to the city of Los Angeles in 1971. 
It's still used as a filming location, and it has great gardens outside so it's a public park, and swanky benefits are held there including the annual Hollywood Ball where lots of celebrities attend. Here are just some of the things that have been filmed there. It's the Queen Mansion in the first two seasons of Arrow, as well as Wayne Manor for some exterior shots in Batman and Robin. Oh man, but here you go. Anytime you see something produced in Los Angeles, and there's a mansion or a fancy place with black and white tiled floors and nice wooden walls, it's probably the Grand Hall in Greystone Mansion. It's in the Big Lebowski, it's the interior of the first X-Men movie, and it's the Osborne residence in all three Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. It's even Kermit's home in the 2011 Muppets movie. Oh hey, and it's Dan Aykroyd time. I've never seen this, but it's in the only movie Dan has ever directed, Nothing But Trouble, from 1991. And finally, a few more Bill Murray connections to Greystone Mansion. Let's talk Ghostbusters 2. Special thanks to Paul Rudolph of Spook Central for figuring this out using photographic evidence back in 2012. He proved that Gracie Mansion, the real-life home to the mayor of New York, was actually filmed at the exterior and interior of Greystone Mansion over in Beverly Hills. So that New York scene with the mayor in Ghostbusters 2 is also this German hotel in Stripes. And get ready for this, folks. It's also in Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. Will wonders never cease? Just before we leave Greystone Mansion, there's a deleted sequence. We go inside, and I think it really is inside the mansion, because part of it has the wood paneling, and in separate scenes, Ramus and Sean Young get intimate in a bathtub, and Murray and Souls play in a bedroom. These are the raciest scenes in the movie. What surprises me is that Souls is full-on topless in hers, and I guess that's great if she was fine going topless, but it's interesting to me that they would cut that when they have this footage of one of the leading ladies. I know they kept the shower scene earlier, but you'd think if they had one of the main women doing that on the film, you'd want to keep it in. Let's get back to the plot. Idiot Stillman takes Hulka and the platoon out to recover the RV, even though Hulka points out that they could make a call and get others to bring it back right away. That would probably get Winger and Ziski court-martialed too, so they really should try it, but no, Stillman wants to keep things quiet. Also, now that Stillman is out of uniform, notice that he's wearing this tweed outfit and plus fours, those pants that don't go all the way down, and the high socks, like he's an upper-class nitwit. While it's raining, they rush past a checkpoint into Czechoslovakia. Hey, let's check a map here. Actually, we need to look at an older map. At the time, Czechoslovakia was controlled by the Soviet Union, then it peacefully split into the Czech Republic and Slovakia at the start of 1993. But yes, geography. The platoon starts in Milan, then must have driven up into Austria. The quickest way would have been to go east into present-day Slovakia, but here's the thing, later when they leave Czechoslovakia at the same checkpoint, Winger says they're back in Germany. He means West Germany, of course, because if they were driving into East Germany, they'd still be in Soviet territory. So the platoon drove from Milan up through either Austria or Switzerland, probably through Munich, then headed east into Czechoslovakia. That's... that's an eight-hour trip. Almost 700 kilometers, or 434 miles. Probably longer back in the day, plus even more because they're lost. So yeah, they were on that truck for over eight hours. And while we're on this subject, want to take a guess why this bit was set in Czechoslovakia? Why not East Germany, or Hungary, or Yugoslavia, which were also part of the Soviet Union's Eastern Bloc? I'm guessing it's because Reitman was born in Czechoslovakia, in the area that would become Slovakia in the 90s. I'm not saying that tons of thought was put into this, other than it does just check out on a map, but they were probably thinking of which communist country the platoon should get caught in, and why not make it where the Reitman family came from? So there you go. I'm pretty sure Stripes is partly set in Czechoslovakia because of Ivan Reitman's connection to it. We get a quick bit with the border guards we'll be seeing for the rest of the movie. We've got Joe Flaherty from SCTV. 
The only other time I think he'll work on a Reitman production is in Heavy Metal. You know, for some reason, I thought he was a Canadian actor. Probably because most of the SCTV cast are Canadian. But no, he's American. The other guard is Nick Toth, who I'm not really familiar with. IMDB says this is his first acting credit, and it looks like most of his career has been as a character actor. You can see him in things like New Heart and Roseanne, all the way up to 24 in Desperate Housewives. And just really quick, it should be obvious, but these guys don't speak real Russian or Czech. They're just imitating some sounds. But actually jumping around here, the crew asked around in Louisville, and there were Russian-Jewish immigrants, very much with the same story as the Reitman family, so some of the guards at the complex are those Russian-Jewish immigrants, and they get to say a few real words in Russian. So the platoon just broke into Czechoslovakia, and Holka bails out. They're stopped by soldiers and three tanks, and I spent some time investigating what tanks they might be, because they're obviously not Soviet, but American tanks with red stars painted on them. I had to mostly go by the square-looking gun mantlet where the gun mounts on the tank. My non-expert opinion is that they're probably M48 patents, which would make sense because the patents were pretty standard, and used from the 50s into the 90s. Anyway, if you're an expert on tanks, you can let me know for sure. I like the gag where the truck stops and the guys all have their guns at the ready, then they immediately surrender and hand them over. We get our first view of the Soviet military complex with scary, overbearing music. This is actually the old Chapeze Distillery in Bullet County, Kentucky. That's C-H-A-P-E-Z-E -E Distillery if you want to look it up. I had a hard time nailing down actually when it was founded at that site, sometime between the 1860s and 1880s, which is pretty impressive that it closed down and was able to start up again after Prohibition. The distillery was purchased by Jim Beam, and their modern distillery is only around 30 minutes away. I see some places online mention that the Chapeze site is still used by Jim Beam as an extra warehouse, but it hasn't been in operation otherwise for years, even when they were filming in 1980. If you look at photos online, which are fun to see because all the buildings are still there, but if you look at photos or videos, you can see why they chose this as a filming location. It could work as a Soviet complex, especially with one office building being sort of a European style, and right next to it is a brick building that's very industrial. What also must have been handy about this place is everything is on one side of the road and railroad tracks, so you've got a lot open space on the other side to get the shots that you need, like of the firefight or the rocket launching. Oh, and finally, it's only around 40 minutes away from Fort Knox, so it was right nearby for them to use. Our heroes and heroines exit the hotel, and you see Bill Murray really ad-lib. He's playing up the fact that they're in Germany to the rafters. I think he's overplaying it so much because he's amused that they're really in L.A. He talks about schnitzel and schnauzer, calls people Hansel, Gretel, and Klaus, which is all kind of mean, really. There's a bit where he tips a bellhop and says, Here, more worthless money for you. I want to break that joke down. He could just be meaning that he's not giving a big tip. Bill Murray is improvising here, and what I think he's really doing is joking about the scene itself. He's either handing out fake money, so it really is worthless, but much more likely he's handing over U.S. cash, which would also be effectively worthless in Germany unless the guy took it to the bank. That's the joke. He's joking about handing over American money when they're supposed to be in Germany. It's neat because, again, I think Bill is just saying something to amuse himself. Inside the RV, they catch Hulka's call for help on the radio. And hey, I looked something up. Hulka says, Mayday, Code 21, Status 7. A Code 21 means he's ready to provide a location, and Status 7 means that they are part of the U.S. Army stationed in another country. So what Hulka says here at the start of the transmission actually makes sense. You can double-check it yourself if you look up a Samus handbook. That's a Structure and Allocation Manpower System handbook. Okay, but now we run into problems. Hulka radios the coordinates of 41.6 latitude, 39.7 longitude. 
<laughs> That's over the Black Sea. It's closest to Turkey and Georgia, so Hulka was off by only about... Oh, 3,000 kilometers, or 1,800 miles. That's incredibly lost. That's like looking for the Statue of Liberty in Colorado kind of lost. Oh, but then this gets better. Ziski puts in the coordinates in the wrong order. If you watch the labels on the controls, for some reason longitude is up top. Because, you know, this wasn't a real military vehicle. So Ramus accidentally mixes up the latitude and longitude. But even with his mistake, the map would still be showing Turkey instead of Czechoslovakia. Guess I'm just better at geography than these people. Oh, a final thing on geography. The map on the screen really does show Czechoslovakia, though the coordinates in the top right are still wrong. The red dot Ramus points to is really close to Prisili, which looks like a really nice little town today. Prisili is at 49.1 latitude, 13.4 longitude. There, I fixed it for them. Sean Young has a line, If it's a status 7 like you said, they went in undercover, so the DOD won't even acknowledge it. The DOD means the Department of Defense. This bit... This bit also doesn't make sense, as near as I can tell. I believe Status 7 indicates that the platoon originated from a base in Milan. Status 7 just means you're operating in agreement with an allied nation. She's right that the group went in undercover. Well, accidentally undercover, but still. But Status 7 doesn't really indicate how badly they're in trouble. At least, that's me, a civilian, reading a Samus handbook. If we have any American soldiers listening in, perhaps you can correct me. Ha ha, oh man, I went so into the weeds on this stuff. So Hoka starts out strong on the radio, then the coordinates are wrong and Ziski puts them in wrong, and then Sean Young's line doesn't really add up. But moving on to other things, hey, the interior of the RV. When you see a shot of the four of them, look above Harold Ramus's head. I love it how there's a dryer duct above his head. It doesn't really look like a military grade at all, and the metal ceiling is just aluminum siding. I'm not trying to insult the production people, I'm just tickled I can tell that they bought stuff from a hardware store. Hey, so the control panel and electronic gear reminded me of Ecto-1 a few years later. I mean, they're both kind of similar ideas, actually. Cars that are outfitted with gear that the viewers don't really understand. This got me wondering if the people who designed parts of the EM-50 worked on Ecto-1. I mean, they are both Columbia pictures. Well, looking at the credits, I don't think so. Steve Dane was the primary designer of Ecto-1, along with lots of other things in Ghostbusters, and he did not work on Stripes. As near as I could tell, nobody who worked on the EM-50 worked on Ecto-1. It's deleted scene time. Similar to the apartment scenes at the start of the movie that over-explains the guys enlisting, there's a scene here where Winger has to really convince his friend that they should go rescue the platoon. Half of it's funny. Ziski says that after this mission, he's not going to be a soldier anymore, but he's going to end up working for the army as a typist. And half of it is a bit rough with talking about whether they'd rescue a woman if she was being raped. I'm glad they cut that, and besides, there's no real way of justifying some of the logic in this movie, so it's better to not even talk about it and just move on to the next scene. Winger also does say it'll take them only an hour to reach the border with Czechoslovakia, and if they were going to Prasili, like the map indicated, that could potentially check out. Okay, the story. They drive the RV to the little checkpoint, act like clueless tourists, and tie up the guards, though that's off-screen. Winger says that they're looking for Innsbruck, Austria, which is famous for skiing, just like they say. They drive into the Soviet compound. I love the Russian-style music and Winger walking around acting confident. When you watch them drive in, you can clearly see through the glass of the RV, so the soldiers can all see its civilians driving the RV. Well, the enemy quickly figures them out, and the RV transforms, popping out guns and plating. Winger calls all the men outside Barishnikov's, who of course is a famous Russian ballet dancer who defected to the West in 74, so his defection was still kind of in the zeitgeist when this movie came out. 
Also, watch right there, because Bill is honestly having a hard time getting his gear on, so PJ helps him out. Oh, oh, current news. Thanks to Troy and Chris on the Interdimensional Crossrip podcast for alerting people to this. Starting in the 2010s, Bill Murray has been a part owner of Slovenia Vodka. And guess who the other celebrity owner is? Mikhail Baryshnikov. And they even did web ads together for it in 2013. It's not that strange, but I just like it that he comments on him here in this movie, and now they're both investors in a vodka together. One of the biggest stunts in the movie is where they drive up to a tower and fire a rocket at it, and the soldier there jumps out just in time before a big explosion. It looks like a dangerous stunt for that actor. I kind of like... Look, this isn't some small independent movie. It did cost $10 million to make. But I kind of like the quaintness of it, that this one good explosion and stunt actor is the most impressive thing in the movie. They asked an old pro at these kinds of special effects how to do this sort of thing, and the rocket is really traveling along a wire. Oh, and watch PJ Souls during all these action scenes. This is supposed to be a life-or-death situation, but she has this big smile in almost every scene because she just finds it fun. It's just playtime. It sort of works against the fiction of the movie, but most people don't notice it anyway, and I just love seeing that she's having a ball. Bill Murray and PJ Souls break into where the platoon are being held prisoner. They're really making an assumption that the guys will be held prisoner inside whatever building their truck is parked by. Whatever, for the sake of expediency in the story, it works. Apparently Bill quite disliked these scenes. He didn't like the gunplay or simulating violence, even if it was all going to end up being in a goofy movie. Also, when he throws a grenade, watch for how he covers PJ and puts his leg up around her, which is funny. They get down to the basement and find the platoon behind a locked door. I like it how Murray says some funny hellos through the door. Then he says he's Idi Amin. I'm guessing that's another ad-lib from him. Idi Amin was the president and military dictator of Uganda for almost all of the 1970s. He was a horrible human being and was deposed just in 79. So I think Bill just pulled his name as someone who was famous for being in the military. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's not a particularly good joke either. They try blowing the door, but that doesn't work. Like I said, now Ox's anger issues finally come into play again, and he gets mad and rushes at Stillman by the door, and the door finally falls down. They get outside, and Winger saying, We had a car waiting, is pretty funny. There's some running around, and the group is nearly pinned between a tank and soldiers firing when the RV comes back around and saves them. I love it when Harold comes out of the back of the RV. He shouts, We're here! Then looks unsure of himself and does a double take. I don't think he's acting for a moment there. I think he's really confused about what's happening in that scene, wondering if the RV is doing what it's supposed to be, and then he shouts John and suddenly the scene works. Everyone gets in, and they're on their way, and of course nobody at the compound thinks to cut off their escape route. I've been ignoring this fact, but you remember it. Hulka has been sneaking around being an actually capable soldier behind enemy lines. He even knocks out a heavy gunner at one point, saving the RV and sending the shell all the way over to the border crossing, and we see the guards there getting out of the ropes, see the shell coming, and run away in time. As the RV is driving away, Hulka leaps onto the back of it and hitches a ride without them knowing. That's... there's nothing wrong with that, but it's kind of weird the rest aren't even aware that he's around. After he radioed in the bad coordinates, Hulka is basically done from the story. They have him save the RV once to give him something to do, but he's really kind of an extra piece hanging around in the last sequence more than he is a character. And the final bit of fun. The RV crashes through the actual checkpoint building with Hulka on top. As a running gag, Joe Flaherty accidentally splashes coffee on his comrade for the second time. The first time he did it was when the RV broke through with the platoon at night. Also notice the music. It's still Bernstein's Stripes melody, but it's in a western style, and a lot of strings come in. 
it's jauntier and more happy now, and also demonstrates its really fine line between a military-style march and Western music, which of course Elmer Bernstein was very familiar with both. The guards speak gibberish to each other, then they complete the jokes about the RV that even began all the way back at the deleted scene with Winger saying one would be good for picking up girls in Nepal. These guys would like to drive over to Minsk. Man, that's over a thousand kilometers away. Everybody's doing big road trips in this movie. Then hey, using newspapers and magazines as a way to show the future is kind of like how Animal House used text to describe what happened to everyone. The two guards are local heroes fighting off Yankees. At an airfield back in the States, the platoon are all dressed sharp. Ox tells them to do a Queen Anne salute again, but once again, I don't think that's what they really do. They just put their guns to their right shoulders. Sergeant Hulka retires and announces he's going to start a franchise of Hulka Burger restaurants. That's funny. It's also out of left field. I like it, but I don't know. I wish it was set up somehow. Like if he talked about bad food served in the mess hall in a previous scene or something. And hey, the paper is dated June 26th, 1981, the day this movie premiered. That's some forethought right there. Also, you can actually read some of the text on the paper. It says that Hulka has been in the army for 28 years, and he's turning in his fatigues. Hulka is also quoted as saying, there's big bucks and burgers. PJ Soul's character is on the cover of Penthouse, also for June 1981. I think Sean Young's is cooler, Road Life, where she talks about her favorite tanks, firepower versus miles per gallon. It's interesting that the cover has a picture of the EM-50, so I guess it's not a secret after their adventures in Czechoslovakia. I looked it up and I don't believe there was a magazine called Road Life back in that day. There is one today, but it's actually German, even though its name is in English. Russell Ziski is on the cover of Guts magazine, the magazine for real men. This was another fake publication, though there's a French magazine and a Canadian digital publication that go by Guts today. Of course, Ziski gets the biggest irony that the guy who made himself out to be a coward and a self-interested pacifist is made out to be a real he-man calling the Russians pussies. And this is easy to spot. The photos of Harold Ramis during the firefight as they boarded the RV. You can even see parts of John Larroquette and Bill Murray in costume. This means it should have been impossible for anyone to photograph him right then, but of course it was someone on the set snapping photos for this cover. Owen oh, Ziski points to his medal and says, Valatorius service. Ha, Valatorius is not a word. And if you Google it, this scene in Stripes is what shows up. But hey, all the characters on the plane did get the same medal. It's the Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest honor in the U.S. Army. Ziski's line about not wanting to do interviews, that they just want to get back to the hotel and have some really serious sex, is really funny. It's also funny that the editing makes it look like Ox heard the comment and gives a thumbs up, even though he was probably too far away, and there was a cheering crowd stopping him from overhearing. Speaking of Ox, he's on the cover of a real magazine, Tiger Beat, where you can win a date with him. It's a cute gag, though John Candy was 30 at the time of filming. Considering the magazine calls him a teen heartthrob, it's a bit icky, but then I don't know what other magazine you could use to convey the same joke. And almost finally, we have Newsworld. It's obviously supposed to be Newsweek, and it even has the same font, but they just must not have been able to get Newsweek to agree to do this. But we've got John Winger pointing like Uncle Sam. The text reads, The new army, can America survive? The honky-tonk piano plays, showing Winger went through everything, but is still the same guy. We'll get back to this in a moment. Our final piece of news, from Nome, Alaska. There's a record cold spell, and they have a new commanding officer, Stillman. And hey, check out the date. It's also June 26th, so for it to be that cold and snowing then, that's a hell of a thing. And Ox leads the platoon down the runway singing Do What Diddy, the influence of Ziski and Winger rubbing off on them. If you've got the Blu-ray, watch them to the end of the credits rolling. 
At a certain point, they mostly stop moving forward, and the guys just start goofing off and jumping, killing time until they know the credits will be over. But I want to get back to Winger's cover. The new army, Can America Survive? On the one hand, it's a question of, can the army survive with guys like John Winger? These guys who are so independent and so against authority? But here's the thing. I think to Reitman and his friends, this is a semi-serious question. Their whole comedy has been one of bucking against the status quo, making fun of institutions. That's what Animal House was. That's the movie that we just saw in Stripes. Now, they know this movie is a farce, and you're not really going to have guys like John Winger in the armed services, but I think this is something they actually sort of consider. Are institutions like the military going to be able to handle guys like Reitman or Murray or Ramos, people who are more individualistic, who went through the hippie 60s and saw how pointless Vietnam was? This is something I want to expand on in a future podcast, and it's also something to keep in mind when we reach Ghostbusters as well, which is all about a small group of guys being right when the man, the man being represented by Walter Peck, is wrong. And there are good and bad implications to this way of thinking, but this is where Reitman and his friends are coming from, questioning authority. We're burning daylight here. Stripes cost $10 million to make and earned $83 million. I think you've heard me make the case that this movie is really two stories in one, and I won't belabor the point that sections of its plot are nonsense. Nonsense in that there's no reason a general would use a platoon that didn't have basic training down or that security was super lax on a top-secret armored vehicle. More importantly than those facts, this movie is a lot of fun, and I think really shows Ivan Reitman knowing what he's doing. Meatballs was okay, but this is next level. I didn't even really get to focus a lot on how funny a lot of the dialogue exchanges are, and as always, you can tell where Bill Murray was allowed to do his own thing. But really, all the actors do a great job. I could go over all of them, but honestly, I just think everyone is great in their roles. I mentioned near the start, along with this movie not quite being a united whole, there's a lingering bit of Animal House here in that all the soldiers have nicknames, Ox and Psycho and Cruiser, but you forget about almost all of them except for John Candy. Speaking of which, he's fantastic, but the scenes where he's being charming, even charmingly deceitful to Cruiser, works much better than the idea that he's actually an angry guy. I don't think that thread's distracting, but I think it's something that just wasn't pulled off, and you don't really notice that it's supposed to be its own little arc, ending with him crashing through the door. Oh, some news I nearly forgot. In 2017, it was reported that Stripes was being developed as a TV series for CBS, with Ivan Reitman producing. I haven't heard about it since. I don't know what to think of that idea. Like, I mean, on the one hand you've got actors like Joel McHale who would look like they fit into that mold, but I don't really know what you'd really do with extending this idea of a misfit who ignores orders over several years. Realistically, that's the unfortunate truth to Stripes, that as soon as the celebrations are over on the airfield, and a commanding officer actually tells John Winger what he needs to do, and John is either flip or shows he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing in the army, he'd be reprimanded and possibly expelled. I mean, we all know he should actually be court-martialed just based off of him and Ziski stealing the RV. I can't really imagine a TV show where each week Winger manages to outsmart enemies and superior officers by being a smart-mouthed jerk. Maybe I'm wrong. Part of the problem is you also want to see Bill Murray in that role, so if you get a different actor, you almost wonder, what's the point? So let's go another route and build a Stripes show around new characters who aren't John Winger and Russell Ziski, but then I almost wonder what's the point of that? I don't know, I sound so down about it. Honestly, it's 2019. If I was a betting man, I'm guessing we'll just never hear about this project again, but who knows? Let's check the big board. Ghostbusters gets the gold medal. Stripes is our new runner-up, followed by Meatballs, Orientation, and Cannibal Girls. 
being the runner-up to Ghostbusters is not bad at all. It's very good. Company dismissed. I'm Ross May, and you can say hi to me on Twitter at Ross May Writer, or go to rossmaywriter.com to find my email there. A reminder that Reitman for the job will be on hiatus while I fly to outer space for heavy metal, and then guess what? We'll have reached Ghostbusters. It's what we're all here for. I'll see you in a few months, but for now we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way. <laughs>